Hello, my name is Chrissy Champagne, and you are listening to Residue, a true crime podcast dedicated to keeping you paranoid. Today, we're going to be talking about a case that I feel needs to be discussed over and over. We have to keep putting it out there just to get some results or to get the conversation flowing about what could have possibly happened. Why was this investigation so messed up? And this is the case of Tamla Horsford. Tamla Horsford was 40 years old and she was attending a slumber party, an adult slumber party with some new friends that she had made through her son's football team. So these were football moms. Tamla was married to her husband, Leander, and they had five sons together. She also had a stepdaughter from Leander's previous relationship. Tamla was born on October 10th, 1978 in St. Vincent and the Grenadines, an island country in the Caribbean, and she was said to be a spectacular mother. She was always at every single game that her sons had. She was always cheering. There's one interview that I saw with her husband, Leander, where he said that she was always running down the field yelling, can't stop greatness, can't stop greatness. She was obsessed with her children. Her husband, Leander, had stated that there were three things that you need to know about Tamla. One, she loved her family. Two, she loved life. And three, she loved you. She was always so friendly to everyone she met and always made even a stranger feel like they were a part of the family. On November 3rd, 2018, Tamla was invited to a slumber party for a woman named Jean Myers, and it was her birthday, and she had invited a group of women over to spend the night if they wanted to, or they could leave. They were just going to hang out, drink. It was going to be girls only. By November 4th, 2018, Tamla's body would be found in the backyard of the home of Jean Myers. Now, before we get into the case, the night of the party, the aftermath, I do think it's very important to give you a background on coming Georgia and specifically Forsyth County. Forsyth County has a long history of racism. In 1912, a white woman was murdered and another white woman was raped, and it was said that the white residents then started to force the black residents out in order to, quote, protect the women. So I believe it was about 1,098 black residents were pushed out of the county. They were threatened with murder, with violence. In 1987, there were over 15,000 civil rights activists uh, that participated in the Brotherhood March. And this march focused national attention on Forsyth County's reputation for racial intolerance and violence. And this is 1987. And this was happening. So you just have to keep that in mind. And I'm not saying that this has anything to do with what happened with this investigation, but I think it's so important to have a background and a backstory on how or why things could have went the wrong way. There was only a 3.6% black population in the county of Forsyth, and that was in 2019. 
So Jean's party was supposed to start anywhere between 6.30 and 7 p.m. And Tamla was really excited. She didn't really get a lot of time to spend with girlfriends or with just girls night type of situations. And so she ended up stopping off to buy a bottle of tequila as a birthday present for Jean. And she arrived at the party around 8, 8.30. So these women were not all friends. They were acquaintances. Um, Some of them didn't know each other at all and they were all, they all knew Jean. So they were there for her 45th birthday. And as Tamla enters and she presents Jean with her bottle of tequila, it was a pretty expensive bottle of tequila, Tamla's favorite. Jean just was kind of a bitch about it and said, I'm not going to drink that. I don't like tequila. Just take the damn present and say thank you. I just get worked up about this because I have no tolerance for the spoiled brat type of attitude. Just the whole vibe of an adult sleepover with a bunch of women you don't know, that's just definitely not my scene. So this is supposed to be a girls' night only, no no boys allowed type of situation, but when Tamla gets there, it is said that Jose Barrera was there, and that is Jean's boyfriend and he's much younger than her. I believe he's 27 at this point. So Jose is staying at Jean's house that night and says, listen, I don't feel good. I don't feel like going out. So Stacy's husband actually ended up staying there with Jose. And Stacy was Jean's friend who actually planned this entire party for her. So there are 13 guests at the party and the women have a lot of fun. They're watching the football game. They end up playing cards against humanity. They're drinking. They're having a great time. Two women actually were never going to spend the night. They always knew they were going to leave early. So it was Sarah and Nicole were the first to leave this party around 10.30 p.m. The party starts winding down around 1, 1 1.30 a.m. and Jean wants to go to bed. So her and Jose are going to go upstairs and Jean actually said in one of her interviews that Tamla was really excited to be at a party and she was still, you know, wanted to keep it all pumping and going and she was like, no, please stay up with me and never get to do this. Jean states to the police that at this point, Tamla said she was going to go outside and smoke a cigarette. She also doesn't forget to keep mentioning that Tamla was always drinking the tequila. She always had the bottle in her hand and that she almost drank the entire thing. Now, this is something that everyone that's interviewed is going to always keep bringing up. The next person to leave the party while Tamla was still awake was Bridget, and Bridget left at around 1.47 a.m., and I'm very specific about the exact time because this is around the same exact time that the coroner is going to later list Tamla's time of death. Bridget says that as she was leaving, her husband came to pick her up, that Tamla hugged her and said that she was going to have some gumbo and then she was going to have a cigarette before she went to bed. The next person to leave the party was Marcy, and Marcy left at 4.10 a.m., so she had to work the next day, so that's why she was leaving at such an odd time, and she also said that she didn't notice anything when she woke up. Now, the next person to leave is going to be Paula. Paula's going to leave at 7.45 a.m., and she also says that everything seemed normal as she left the party. Just 15 minutes before Tamla's body is found, it is now 8.30 a.m., this is when Tom and Stacy leave the party. 
Another important thing to note in this situation was that Jean says that Tamla wanted everybody to stay awake, and this is around one in the morning. She was like, please don't go to bed. I want to hang out with everyone. But during interviews, it is also said that Tamla wanted to go home, and they wouldn't let her go home. Everyone said there's no way she's getting in that car. There's no way she's leaving. She's very drunk. We have to keep her here. I mean, it's like, it's 2018. Like, she can't take an Uber or call her husband. I'm sure Lee would have come and got her. But this is not really elaborated on. It's just said over and over, Tamla wanted to leave. So what is it? Did she want to leave or did she want everyone to stay up and keep partying? Jean Meyer's aunt, Madeline, was staying at the party also. I guess Madeline lived with her. And so she was there at the party. And so Madeline wakes up first. She says that she went downstairs because she wanted to get the coffee started for everyone. So she's walking downstairs and she looks outside and she sees a girl laying on the ground. And this is the part that gets me so angry and so suspicious because here is exactly what Madeline says she did when she saw a person, a person that she just hung out with all night, laying face down in the grass in the backyard. She said she didn't help. She didn't call for help. She didn't run out to Tamla. She got down on her knees and she prayed for a little bit. Then she got back up. She went upstairs, knocked on John's door. She said that she could hear water running. She figured maybe they're taking a shower. So she goes back downstairs, does nothing, doesn't call for help, doesn't call 911, doesn't run outside, which I'm sorry, but if I had a sleepover and even if I barely knew a person that slept over, which wouldn't happen, I'm going to run outside and I'm going to figure out what the hell is going on. I'm not going to pray. It's, it's insane to me. So she goes back upstairs again and she knocks on the door and she tells Jean, I need to talk to Jose. And Jean's like, what's happening? And she's like, no, no, not you. I want to talk to Jose. Like, first of all, Jose is a 27-year-old guy who doesn't even live here. And just I talk to anyone, get someone downstairs to figure out what's happened to Tamla. And to make matters worse for Madeline, she doesn't say, hey, your friend Tamla's outside or your friend's outside. Here's what she says. She says, the girl from the islands is outside on the ground. At 8.59 a.m., Jean Myers calls 911. She speaks to them for a little bit. They're asking her questions, but she gets Jose on the phone. And Jose speaks to the 911 operator. He describes Tamla as laying face down and not breathing. So she is laying directly face down in the grass. She is not turning her head to the side. Her head isn't, you know, over to the side a little bit. Her nose is like flat down. Her arms are at her sides palms up, both of them, and her legs are, are just stretched out straight. Jose starts describing and bringing attention to a small cut on Tamla's wrist and suggesting that it might be self-inflicted. Like, insane that you're suggesting that a woman committed suicide in the middle of a party, a slumber party. It's like, you don't even know her. And why are you... One thing that always throws me off on these cases, or not throws me off, but really gets me suspicious is when the suspects or could be suspect always brings um, their own version of what could have happened. Like they're talking to the investigators and they're always like, well, maybe this happened. It's like, J stop talking. Stop talking. 
Police arrive around 9.07 a.m., so they get there pretty quickly. And when they arrive, they do notice that her left arm was bent at the elbow and extended away from her body. So everything they heard on the 911 call wasn't true. And in their investigation, every single person at that party says that her arms were flat down at her side with her palms up. Some even said it was an image that would be ingrained in their brain forever. So now the police arrive and her left arm is bent. Visible injuries right away that they could see were her wrist, um, her side of her face, there were cuts on her legs, and then they brought her to the medical examiner. Here is a part that everyone is in an uproar about. The medical examiner did not take one photograph during this autopsy. Nothing. Now, since the moment that Madeline woke up and prayed to this part and the non-existent autopsy photos, this is where people start having suspicions. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, Tamla was invited to this party and they all planned on something bad happening. What I'm saying is that from this point, this investigation was just completely fucked up. Even just from the fact that now Leander has no idea that something has happened to his wife. He tells a story that the police arrive at his door and he's like, what's happening? What's going on? And they just keep yelling at him. Are you Leander? Are you Leander? And he said they were very aggressive. And he's just like, tell me what is going on. Very coldly, no remorse, no respect. They just say, it's about your wife. She's deceased. Tamla's autopsy report comes back and it lists the following, one inch laceration to wrist, a quarter abrasion to forearm, small abrasions to forehead, nose, and chin, three quarter laceration to right ventricle of the heart, severe injuries to neck and head and torso, trace amounts of THC and Xanax. The Xanax wasn't yet metabolized in her liver, which meant that she had just consumed it. So the death is ruled an accident, and there's no evidence of injuries that would prove foul play. It's being suspected that um, Tamla fell from the balcony, face first. Her nose didn't break, but she did fall face first from a balcony that was about 14 feet off the ground, and her teeth were fine, and they ruled she must have just fallen off the balcony. It was also said she could have, there was like um, some landscaping in the backyard, and it had a little fence around it and they were also suggesting that she could have tripped on that fence if she went outside to smoke and maybe she tripped on that fence and fell face forward. Lee tells a story about going to the funeral home to view Tamla's body before the wake and he had his children with him. He describes walking into the room to see his wife and all he did was just yell, what the fuck? And he says in his own words that she looked like she had black shoe polish on her face. They told him that they had to paint her this way to cover up the bruising. He said that it felt like they put her in blackface. Another point of suspicion surrounding the investigation was the fact that Jose let the police know that Jean had a security system in her home. So she had cameras all over the house and that maybe they could take a look at the cameras and figure out what happened. Well, the cameras weren't working, as you would expect. 
So Jean actually says that the cameras weren't working because she had initially installed them because her ex-husband was threatening her. And so she had the cameras put in the house to make sure he didn't stop over, stop by. So she said that since they were now getting along, she just forgot to change the batteries in the camera, which I mean, it could happen. It's happened to me. But she was still getting alarm notices on her phone, as we do. Um, It would tell her when a door opened, when a door closed. So the file has the times listed, and this is what they were. So at 1.47 a.m., the front door opens and closes. And this is possibly Bridget leaving. At 1.49 a.m., the door opens again and then closes again. At 1.57 a.m., the back door is now opened again, but it is never closed. And that door was open a bit in the morning, like it was a bit ajar. At 4.10 a.m., the front door opens and closes again. So this is when Marcy left. And then at 7.30 a.m., the same thing when Paula leaves. So they have these notifications to look at, and they just, they don't have any video. Another thing to know is that Tamla had a pretty high blood alcohol level. It was 0.238%, which was three times the legal limit in Georgia. And they did find traces of Xanax in her system, but she never was prescribed Xanax. She never carried around pills. So it was a little bit suspicious as to where the Xanax came from. And even though her blood alcohol level was so high, everyone at the party all said the same thing, that she didn't seem overly drunk. When police interviewed everyone that was at the party, they initially had Jean call everyone back that had left, and they didn't take them down to the police station, as I would assume would be something that would happen. They just had them all come over to Jean's house again, and they they did leave them alone in a room together for a little bit. So it's I'm not saying anything happened in that room. I'm just saying... I just find it strange that you would leave the entire group of possible witnesses alone in a room together before interviewing each of them one by one. So Jean's aunt Madeline is interviewed in the kitchen and it's it's so crazy. So while she's being interviewed, Jean just like walks in. She's like, oh, hey guys, like this is an investigation into the death of somebody that you called a friend. And she brings the detectives some Dunkin Donuts gift cards and she even kind of makes a joke like oh I figure you guys would like donuts and they of course they say they can't accept them this is a bribe (laughs) but that's um Jean just entering Madeline's interview and I did also read somewhere that she said something like are you guys all set with me for now or can I go upstairs and get ready for this funeral this funeral not can I please get ready to attend my friend's funeral? And then there's Bridget's interview, which Bridget's is just a rambling mess of nonsense. Almost like she was so nervous, she just kept talking. I mean, I'm guilty of that too. I do that all the time. But she's just rambling and rambling, not even asking or not even answering any of the questions. She calls herself a mother hen a lot. She she states that a lot. She likes to also say, I like to keep my faculties about me. So she didn't drink a lot is basically what she's saying is that she's usually in charge of the children at parties. It's like, Bridget, what are you talking about? Why is he even asking her questions like this? And the whole entire time that she's rambling, the officer just responds every now and then with, yeah, 
right? Hardcore, deep digging investigation right there. Another thing that you have to take into account in this case is that this case did not receive any public recognition at all until about two months after Tamla's death. And this is because one of the witnesses was fired from his county court officer job for accessing the incident report to Tamla's death. And who do you think that was? That was Jose Barrera. Jose Barrera was a Forsyth County Superior Court employee. He worked as a pre-trial release services officer. So this might be why, in the beginning, Madeline only wanted to speak to Jose. So he was actually let go from that job after trying to access evidence in the Tamla Horsford case. Jose accessed these police files and this threw up a huge red flag to the police. So he was placed on administrative leave on December 17th, 2018 for accessing those files. And then he was terminated from this position on December 20th, 2018. And that was based on a loss of confidence from the police department. It's at this point that hundreds of people start sharing the hashtag, hashtag Tamla Horsford, questioning all of the different angles of this case and just calling for justice for her family. Tamla's case was officially closed on February 20th, 2019, and it was ruled as an accidental death. The case of Tamla Horsford starts spreading across the internet, and they start a change.org petition calling for the case to be reopened, and they got more than 709,000 signatures, and rappers such as T.I. and 50 Cent, they also shared posts about this case, and people just wanted to know what happened to Tamla. I mean, that's the main point. It's like, okay, Tamla had been in an accident. Tamla has died. Can you please at least figure out how it happened? What are the logistics? Who was involved? If it was just an accident, then at least give her family some kind of closure with this. Just my main question, as I'm sure many of you have the same question, is why was it so unimportant? Why were more steps not taken? Why was it just like a nonchalant type of case that they didn't really think needed to be solved? On June 12th, 2020, Forsyth County Sheriff Ron Freeman sent a letter requesting that this case be reopened and investigated by the GBI, the Georgia Borough of Investigations. Ralph E. Fernandez, the family lawyer of the Horsefords, sent Leander Horsford a letter on June 5th, 2020. And I want to read that letter to you because it's a pretty powerful letter. It starts, Dear Leander, Two weeks ago, we finished the exhaustive review of the records related to the investigation into the death of Tamla. I am glad we had an opportunity to conference today with the rest of the immediate family. Hopefully by Tuesday, I will have a more detailed analysis, but for today, however, I want to repeat some of what I told you. The review reflects that a homicide is a strong possibility. Witness statements are in conflict. A potential subject handled the body as well as the evidence prior to the law enforcement arrival. Evidence was disposed of and no inquiry followed. The scene was not preserved. Evidence was inappropriately handled. The investigation was compromised by unauthorized access and disclosure to potential targets and witnesses. A remarkable fact is that there were no photographs taken during the autopsy of Tamla's body. This had to have been done at someone's directive because such a practice is unheard of. Let us address one issue as a sample in reverse order from the above. 
It appears Tamla was involved in a struggle. There were abrasions noted consistent with that scenario. There were parallel scratches to one arm. Since they were fresh, photos would have been proven recent use of defensive force, but having no photos inures to our detriment. There was one x-ray, yet the injury noted as the cause of death appears nowhere. Getting the records has been another monumental task, to say the least. I could go on and will. In a few days, Forsyth County Sheriff's Office employees have been the subject of much criticism. The case agent was a close friend of a subject, who turned out to be the leak of an ongoing investigation. The town of Cumming has a history which raises eyebrows. After conducting my extensive review, I have come to the conclusion that the truth never had a chance here. Let me conclude by telling you that my years of experience lead me to believe that 80% of cases where African Americans die under mysterious circumstances end up closed or cold because there are no videos and the only witnesses are bad guys or good guys that deep down are really bad. Then you have cases where law enforcement does a poor job and cares little to investigate thoroughly because of some connection or association to the perpetrators. Take the Ahmad Arbery slaying recently. Without the video surfacing in the media, there would never have been an arrest in that cozy relationship between the perpetrators, prosecutors, and the investigators. A rookie lawyer that gets a video in a wrongful death case where a stopped car is rear-ended by a speeding semi will win every time. A video of someone walking up to a bank teller, face uncovered, and firing a gun point-blank will most certainly lead to conviction. But those facts are not what we are dealing with here. Here, we are fighting an uphill battle because those who wear the badges and were entrusted with the investigatory task failed you. But this is not over. It will never be over. Be safe. Be strong. We will get to the bottom of this. Sincerely, Ralph E. Fernandez. That's powerful. That is a powerful letter, and I think it completely sums up everything I was thinking, everything I'm sure a lot of people are thinking. He did such a good job with that, and we need to keep this case alive. We need to get answers for Tamla's family. On July 28th, 2021, the GBI concluded their reinvestigation and they ultimately decided not to pursue criminal charges in the Tamla Horsford case. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of Residue. My name is Chrissy Champagne. I hope you all stay safe and stay paranoid. If you enjoyed this week's episode of Residue, please leave a five-star review on any of your preferred listening platforms. It really helps us find other listeners just like you who might enjoy the show. 